What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Tasha Robinson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Black Phillips, if you are wicked. Does he really speak to me? No, it's Michael Phillips. You miss one lousy live show and Adam and Josh just toss you out to the barn like a goat and call you names. <laughs> Your absence has cursed us all, Michael. But you can atone by discussing the new horror film about a 17th century New England family fractured by fear and paranoia. We'll review the 2015 Sundance hit The Witch in theaters now, discuss the monumental box office success of Deadpool, and share our top five baffling Oscar picks from 2015 films in anticipation of next weekend's Academy Awards. All that and more. (laughs) I knew it. Coming up on Film Spotting. presenting the online premiere of Dennis Hopper's newly restored cult film, The American Dreamer, which explodes documentary form and became the portrait of an epic. Hopper shot the film during the drug and orgy-fueled making of his legendary follow-up to Easy Rider, and he stars as himself, a new kind of Hollywood and American icon. The Aviator, this month, Mubi is hosting a series of Oscar winners, including Martin Scorsese's Ode to the Glamour, Legends, and Madness of Old Hollywood. The Academy dug that film's nostalgia and energy. Its wins included Kate Blanchett for Best Supporting Actress in her portrayal of Catherine Hepburn. The Little Foxes is a bonafide classic in our Oscar series. The Academy loves a diva, and they had a magnificent one in Betty Davis, who devours this barbed melodrama from the inside out. With a witty script by the great Lillian Hellman, directed by the master William Wyler, who directed Roman Holiday, this old Hollywood classic scored nine Oscar nods. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. I don't know about me, but you're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Tasha Robinson from The Verge and the Film Spotting family podcast, The Next Picture Show. Michael, it's nice to be back with you. We're filling in for scaredy cats, Adam and Josh, who are probably hiding under their bed right now in anticipation of this week's film. Wait, one bed? They share a bed? <laughs> <laughs> well, they share a share bed for hiding purposes. you got to have a really big high bed if you're going to fit two grown men under <laughs> there when true. the scary That's film And all those out. DVDs, yeah. <laughs> uh, in this week's show, we're going to be talking about Robert Eggers' Tremendous film debut, The Witch, the year's most foul-mouthed superhero, and some Oscar nominees that surprised us. But first, something wicked this way comes. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray.
That was the trailer from the new Robert Eggers horror film, The Witch, which is coming out in wide release. It was a huge hit at the Sundance Film Festival a year ago. And uh, briefly, Tasha, uh, it's, we can say that uh, without giving too much away that it's set in 1630. It's a farm family somewhere in Puritan, New England, uh, a farmer, his wife, and five children. They are booted out of the community for sort of vague, shadowy religious reasons, and they're forced to kind of make a life on their own in a new, a new kind of more desolate part of the area on the edge of a wood that is, unfortunately for them, of course, inhabited by a witch. I really don't want to give away much more, Tasha, because part of the surprise of the film is that uh, even if you know where this simple story is going, I think that the telling of it, Robert Eggers' telling of it, just both visually and just as a narrative, really, really is just head and shoulders above so many other recent horror films that um, that you know the pleasures in seeing what what little surprise there is kind of unfold so beautifully and. I guess I'd like to ask you, first off, if this worked for you as well as it did for me, what, what is it about the whole, not just not just the subject, but the style of this thing that really, that really clicked for you? Well, for one thing, the, the performances are amazing. Eggers put five years into researching all of the different things that go into making this film. He was really fixated on kind of the idiosyncrasies of 17th century Puritan New England life. He grew up in New England. He has been obsessed with witches his whole life, apparently. Uh, I did an interview with him where he said he's basically had nightmares about them his entire life. And he grew up near Salem. So that was just part of the obsession. So this is something that he meticulously researched. All of the language in the film is drawn from documents at the time, from court records and and diaries and letters and writings. He put a great deal of, of trouble into building an actual working farm out of the materials that they would have used at the time. All of the the costumes and the cloth are hand-woven. There's just a ridiculous amount of effort went into making this real, which is strange for what's essentially kind of a supernatural horror film. Right, right. And it's also, it's a different kind of setup because when you when you read about other horror films on a much bigger budget going into that kind of meticulous research and detail in the production design, you're talking about many millions of dollars and you really notice it. This is, this is detail on screen that you may not even notice if, for detail's sake. You don't, you don't ever literally look at any of the settings they found up in northern Ontario, which is doubling for New England, or any of the individual sort of just f- simple farmhouse creations. You know, this, they brought in a roof thatcher from Virginia, apparently, <laughs> all the way up to Canada, because he was the only one who knew how to thatch a roof properly for this, the time period of 1630. And all that stuff you don't notice. But what I think is amazing about the witches, as this family, one by one, is be- beset by this, un- you know, this supernatural force, Satanic force. We can say it. I think we can say Satan here, right? You can without, say whatever without you like. courting Satan. Okay. That kind of physical detail is just simply doing its job in that it, it you feel like you are back in that time period. And I think what you say about the the research that Eggers did, it's also he's a really good writer, not just a good visual storyteller. Apparently he's a really good piecer together of writing from the time. I mean, it's it's hard to tell. He He's really emphasized like how much the language came from the time, which means that all of these actors are speaking entirely in these like very convoluted. There's a lot of thee and thou, you know, if thou dost 
that like that kind of dialogue, which in the wrong mouths can be very awkward, very stilted. Right, and I think that's why he went for a couple of very good British actors as the as the father and uh, mother in this certainly. In this situation. But yeah. it's not the the parents that astound me; it's the children, the ease with which the children adopt this language. You know, as you say, it becomes. It's startling at first, and then it just becomes very immersive. Like you feel like you're actually in this time and place. Hmm. And this time and place is a very frightening time and place to be. It's not at all a traditional horror film. There aren't a whole lot of, of jump shocks. There's not even – I'm not even sure I want to call it a horror film. I'm afraid that people are going to come to this this film with entirely the wrong idea based on all the talk out of how about how it was the scariest film out of Sundance. I didn't find this film terrifying. I'm a, I'm a horror weenie. Right. Like I, it would take very little to get me shoved under that bed with right. Adam and Josh. I didn't find it frightening. I found it – just so emotionally overwhelming. It's it's a film. It's not a film about terror. It's a film about dread. Right. Slow building. That's dread. right. And it's, and it's so effective that it's, way. It's just completely gripping. I agree. And and there's scenes where you can kind of you could loosely characterize them as scenes of demonic possession, let's say, or or, or just some sort of maybe religious fit or something. You know, it's a lot of the, everything that happens on screen can be interpreted more than one way. But there's always that religious underlay to it. And all those scenes are not really shot or cut like horror movie sequences, as you say. It's just simply incredibly gripping technique. And there's a lot of he, – he's taken – the thing I appreciate about Eggers as a director is that he's taken the time to set up fairly complicated shots that, like everything else in the film, you don't really notice the technique. You're simply with certain set of characters – Moving this way and that, whether it's an interior or an exterior, for thirty or forty seconds, and and you have there's been no cut. And there's one scene in particular where one of the younger characters that you mentioned is having a key moment in the farmhouse in the bed, and he's in the in the fit of a demonic possession. And the camera is doing some things that are just absolutely startlingly right, but you you are focused on what the actor is up to and what the moment means for the story. That's this is the kind of technique that people can make ten, twenty, thirty movies. They never learn that. You know, I think he's really good. He's I really know. good. No, it's it's it, this is one of those films where you think if he never makes another movie, like we'll still remember his name in thirty years. Yeah. It's one of those debuts that's just it's hard to believe. He has uh, Eggers has a history in first in acting, then in he did set design, he did costume design, he did production design, and he's kind of emphasized in interviews that that was all like bill paying. None of it was was passionate for him. This is his passion project. But it's a passion project that's come out of all of this experience in creating design, creating a setting, creating a world, and in working very closely with cinematographers, including his cinematographer here, who's a longtime partner of his on short films. And the two of them work together to build just this this beautiful world that you really don't want to be in and can't get out of, but that you feel like you, you're there. Yeah. Now, back in 1999, I've thought of this because of, uh, you know, it was a Sundance as well. The Blair Witch Project comes mm-hmm. out. You know, this is a long time ago. And that's the kind of film that I mean, it went on to make a quarter billion dollars. It was it, the technique at the time, this found footage technique, seemed novel enough to most people. This film, The Witch, Eggers' film, is almost its complete aesthetic opposite. It is not it doesn't go in for any of that shaky cam stuff. It's a much more kind of classically well-made picture. And I guess I fear that like a lot of good films, this one may have to struggle to find an audience because perhaps it is being mismarketed as a kind of a full-on horror film. And it's not. It's really more 
you know, it's almost some of what uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro ran into with Crimson Peak, not a film I love, but it's a film that was marketed as a horror film, but it really wasn't. It was up to other things. And I think The Witch, too, is up to other things. What does this to me? What does this? His mouth is sealed up. Mm. Oh, God. William. William. Mm. Mm. Hold him. Children, away from this. Thomas, say now. Ayers says his inspirations are people like Ingmar Bergman and Carl Dreyer, um, to some degree Stanley Kubrick. He has he has very formalist leanings, and these uh, these shots that you're seeing throughout the film, like they're very formalist. They're often very posed. Um, there's a lot of like slow tracking camera movement, and he used actual dolly cameras to get some of the the smooth motion. He didn't want to go with steady cams. He didn't. He would have shot on film if he'd had the money for it. He is a a formalist director. And if you go in expecting something much more like a Bergman film, you're going to be a lot closer to what the mood is like, what the tone is like, than if you go in expecting It Follows, which is another film that came out of the festivals with the same kind of reputation for this is the scariest thing you're ever going to see. That kind of reputation does great things for a film's box office, at least among the horror set. I'm just, I'm worried about the people who most need and want to see this film not finding it because they think, ah, it's another splatter film. And the people who want splatter films walking in and coming out saying, what did I just see? Right. And it's not its not as if this film were completely devoid of gore and what you might call some truly frightening images. It's full of them. And its it's got a sparing but very effective use of some pretty rough stuff and a fair amount of blood. But uh, so in that regard, it's quite different from – say, the conspicuously blood-free movies like, I don't know, Paranormal Activity, which came straight out of the Blair Witch Project camp, you know, of this, okay, how, how can we gin up this found footage technique for another sequel, things like that. The Witch is just not like that. I have to ask you this, though, and see if we can talk about this without getting into spoiler territory or blowing the ending. I have had a conversation or two with people who admire the film, The Witch, but they feel that they're not comfortable with the implications. They also they they find the movie almost reactionary in the way it deals with things like, the, you know, witches and the persecution of women and it, female empowerment. Female empowerment, yes, right, right. Which of course I'm always frightened of. But um, <laughs> well, you should be. Right. <laughs> but that's kind of the one of the wonderful facts of this historical time period. There was simply no. Uh, I mean, the uh, the options for women were hilariously binary. You know, you're either a you know repressed Puritan or you're a witch, mm-hmm. and that's and the film works on that kind of works on that dynamic. It's it's a it's a film where the female characters are trying to make sense of anything in between those two worlds. And and as Eggers has said in interviews, he's not trying to condemn or endorse any of the witchcraft or supernatural satanic forces we see embodied in the film or in you know inha- as it in- as this force inhabits uh, various characters in the witch but i do kind of find it amusing that the satanic temple the official church of satan in the us has just enthusiastically endorsed the witch has been, just because it doesn't i guess <laughs> in a in a hokey melodramatic way uh, uh condemn the behavior on screen it's just simply recording it and i guess in that regard i i find the film weirdly bracing you know because it it really it really shows again not to spoil anything but it shows that in in this kind of puritan society 
the the best available op- alternative to feminism, apparently in 1630 New England, is Satanism. You know? yeah, pretty so, much. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so difficult to talk about this without giving away things that we we shouldn't give away. Did I, I give away too much? No, I don't. I don't think so. Did I give away but, too little? I don't know. Maybe I give away too little. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm gonna t- I'm gonna take an Eggers here and just say however you choose to interpret okay. it. <laughs> okay. It's I, the ending, especially. I had problems with, and I'm not gonna give anything away when I say I'm not entirely sure where whether it works better on a literal or metaphorical level, and whether it's meant to be taken more on a literal or more afor- metaphorical level. It seems to me like I, I I asked him myself like how not how are we meant to take this because that's one of the world's dumbest questions to ask a a filmmaker right under where do you get your ideas. But whether he wanted people to find it ambiguous, whether he wanted people to discuss it, he's compared this movie repeatedly to The Shining. And you can certainly see why. You know, it's this cold, classical, formalist movie that's about a family coming apart. Mm -hmm. It centers on this like tremendously powerful young performance from a young boy. And it's fundamentally about the interaction of like the supernatural and people who are not equipped to understand it uh, but seem to accept it because they have to. The Shining, the end of The Shining is such an ambiguous moment and it's an ending that kind of is designed to make you go back and say, what does this say about the rest of the film? The end of The Witch has the same kind of effect. It's not a twist ending, but it is certainly an ending that makes everything that's come before reflect in a very different way. It does, although I think I disagree with you on characterizing those two endings, I guess, Tasha, because the ending of The Shining is famously discombobulating and cryptic. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing cryptic about the ending of The Witch. It's it's more that the suggestive horror or the implications become much more baldly stated and it's a different kind of – you're just in a different kind of filmmaking, storytelling, everything at the end because it's, it's a little on the nose, I think. Don't, oh, don't well, you feel? Well, I can certainly see it being I, – I could see it calling it on the nose. For me, it's cryptic I guess because it doesn't, it doesn't entirely fit for me in everything that's gone before right. because everything that's gone before is such an exploration of, of what people do to each other, of how people judge each other, not just in that time but in any time, this tendency to, to be terrified of the unknown and to project it onto other people. Right, right, right. That's good. I think it's the best thing about this storytelling, just scene to scene, especially in the way he uses that sort of period – language for actual speakable dialogue, which is a feat in itself. But in the best of it, I think, you really are getting close to something like Arthur Miller's The Crucible. where you have, bring that up. Which is clearly sort of rolling around in the background of this whole setting anyway, because the Salem Witch Trials a few decades later, this is really kind of a crafty little prequel to The Crucible in that you have you know, this depiction of what happens, what happens when all this paranoia, real or imagined, all this sort of acknowledgement of Satan's presence in the world, real again, real or imagined, manifests itself in the members of a family as they turn on each other and scapegoat each other and and there's also a real goat too, as we as we know, <laughs> Philip Black Philip. But uh, yeah, we got to hear your imitation at the top of the show. <laughs> but honestly, we talk more and more about it. We don't want to give away the ending, but I just want to hear what other people think of it. I, I hope I hope it finds an audience. I really do. It, it would worry me that it just isn't grabby enough for some people, and that the period might put people off because it does seem a little forbidding and kind of. You know, like historical dramas always have to fight a little bit more for an audience with horror, I think, than 
than stuff that's set in the present day. It just it just seems alienating to I think younger viewers in particular. But I mean, I found it a little alienating, and that's something that that I sort of wanted to talk to you about. I I wonder if part of the reason I didn't find this as is numbingly frightening as I find a lot of horror films. You know, I I am the kind of person who like I love the orphanage, but it had me like vibrating an inch above my seat for most of the movie. There's a sense in movies like that of just how can you go on in these circumstances? And one of the interesting things about The Witch is I never got that feeling because there was never any question but that they had no choice to go but to go on. Yeah. And that in and of itself, I mean, it, it contributes to this claustrophobic feeling of dread. One of the things that makes a horror movie work is identification with characters, mm-hmm. you know, seeing yourself in that situation. I couldn't ever see myself in this situation because it was so removed from the present. Hmm. You know, the formal language, the uh, hand-woven clothing, the hand-hued environment, like the cabin that they're living in, everything around them is so specific to time and place. And I know that to some degree it's meant as metaphor, but I found it distancing because it's so formal, because it's got that Kubrickian-like claustrophobia. And to me, it made it harder to identify with the characters. And I end up appreciating it hugely as a piece of really idiosyncratic, specific, driven, passionate craft, Mm. but maybe not so much as either a horror movie or something that touches me like on a personal emotional level. Did you have any of that? Yeah, no. I guess I guess I didn't find it distancing, I think. I, I, what it isn't is as I said, it's not really going for the throat. It's a methodical picture, but it's a strange rhythm because it's a very tight film. It's only barely 90 minutes. And it doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel harried in the way that most horror films do because it's not going for as you say that many jump scares or moments where people are suddenly appearing in frame and scaring the hell out of somebody else. It happens once or twice, but not in any kind of cheap way we come to associate with that sound effect. You know, there's none of that. But there is a fantastic musical score, by the way, that uses everything from this sort of weird Scandinavian keyboard or harp instruments and, you know, a, a choir, kind of a mini version of the choir you heard all over the score of the Omen. You know? But all that's very subtly deployed. I, I just think everything about this film, for me, Tasha, in the way it looks and moves and even sounds is is just sort of designed to bring us back and put us there and just ask the question what if what we see in in the film the witch actually were taking place and it's not it's not the same as trying to create documentary realism with your technique like Blair Witch. It's really just more about like setting the camera back, finding the right moves for it as it interacts with the characters and just simply saying, we're going to tell you the story. And in fact, that's the first thing we see on the credits is, um, you know, The Witch, a New England folktale, mm-hmm. which is sort of perfect because it's setting you up not to call it a horror film or anything else, but just simply, you know, this is, this is it feels like a kind of a, an authentic document or account from the day you know to me and, and and that's about the highest compliment i can pay it and maybe that's why for me the the ending goes off the rails a little bit is because there's a there is an ambiguity to the film and it you always have a problem in any kind of storytelling i think where Eventually, you have to res- either resolve the ambiguity or commit to the ambiguity. Right. This film chooses to resolve it. I, I agree. I agree. It. And I think I'm not sure it works entirely either. I'll admit that. <laughs> but that said, I mean, just everything you've said, the score is is so perfect. The look of the film, these these deep, amazing, rich blacks, the 
the you can feel the weight of the world in this film. Yep. The cinematography is just is out of this world. Great, great. That's a very ashen, silvery quality. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. It's just it's such a beautiful film. And uh, any questions I come away with, any doubts that I have about the content of the film, any sort of lingering questions where I just kind of want to debate, like, what is this movie saying mm-hmm. about? about women, about how people treat each other, about female empowerment, about the future for any of these things, either the the present as we see it now or the future as we're taking it forward. I can set all of that aside to just say this is an impeccable and amazing piece of craft. All right. And I really would like to see what he does next. Same. I agree. It's good. It's good. It's good to feel good about a movie. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it is it's really good. good. It's really you cannot beat the experience of walking in not quite sure what you're getting and to get something this different, this specific. Well, good. I hope we've spoiled everything for everybody. But <laughs> The Witch is now out in wide release. And if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam and Josh will let us know what you thought of it. Next up, we'll consider what Deadpool has to offer besides some fairly creative pileups of profanity, and we'll get into our top five most baffling Oscar nominees from the 2015 film crop. But first, we'll reveal which veteran performer film spotting poll voters most want to see take home a little gold man. Stay with us. When the river rises or her bank, better make your home in a higher place. Or if you stay down by the sand, you'll be washed away to another land. And when the mountains swim in the sea, look around, you won't find me. In the end, what's done is done. If you hear it coming, you won't have to run. Got to change your ways or die If you listen now, I'll tell you why The buffalo is here to stay One of them fellas is not what he says he is. What is he? In cahoots with this one, that's what he is. One of them, maybe even two of them, is here to see Dahmer Goo goes free. Are you sure you ain't just being paranoid? Our best bet is this duplicitous fella and his cool customers, Daisy here. He won't have the leather patience it takes to just sit here. He can't handle it. He'll stop waiting, try and create his opportunity, and that's when Mr. Jumpy reveals himself. And what you got to say about all this? What I got to say about John Reese Ravens? He's absolutely right. Me and one of them fellows is in cahoots. We're just waiting for everybody to go to sleep. That's what we're going to kill y'all. Welcome back to Film Spotting. This is Tasha Robinson from The Verge and the Film Spotting family podcast, The Next Picture Show, sitting in with Chicago Tribune film critic Michael Phillips for this week's episode while Adam and Josh are out. Gone. 
But not forgotten. <laughs> Never forgotten. That was Best Supporting Actress nominee Jennifer Jason Leigh and a scene from Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. She is definitely in cahoots with film spotting listeners, it seems, when it comes to the most recent show poll. A few weeks back, Adam and Josh asked you, which veteran actor and first-time nominee will you be rooting for on Oscar night? Michael, what were the options on that poll? Okay, veteran actors and first-time nominees. The choices are Brian Cranston, Best Actor in Trumbo, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Best Supporting Actress, The Hateful Eight, Charlotte Rampling, Best Actress, 45 Years, and Mark Rylance, Best Supporting Actor, Bridge of Spies. Tasha, how did the voting turn out? Well, Brian Cranston seems a little unloved in Trumbo. He only got 11% of the vote. Charlotte Rampling and Mark Rylance are neck and neck. Uh, she is at 23% for 45 years. He is at 24% for Bridge of Spies. But by far, the favorite of the night, though not a favorite of anyone who's actually in that film, uh, is Jennifer <laughs> Jason Leigh in The Hateful Eight. She got a whopping 42% of the vote. 42%. I hope it is a compensation for what actually happens to her in that movie. I know. I'm still not comfortable with I don't it's impossible for me to read what Tarantino does to that character as a director and writer working through a character rather than just some mess of his own issues. I, yeah, that, that's how that, I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, that that film is so great until suddenly it's so not. I disagree. I think it's not so great uh Long, well, be- we, long before that. We clearly need to drive Adam and Josh back under the bed and come back and take over the studio again. We'll, we'll re-review it. Okay. But but uh, let's hear some of the feedback on this poll, shall we? Yes, let's. This is from Alex Lovendahl from Madison, Wisconsin. This comes down to who would I most want to see win, says Alex. Cranston may or may not deserve the win, but I don't want to see him beat Leo. Nardo DiCaprio, that is. Same for Rampling with Brie Larson. That leaves supporting. I don't quite get the Rylance thing, but Jennifer Jason Lee is easily one of my three favorites in her category. I'd enjoy seeing her win. My real pick is Rachel McAdams, who I'd like to see continuing to do amazing work in dramas. Here's a letter from Ken, who says, In the same episode in which you put this choice on us, you featured a clip from The Hudsucker Proxy to remind us of how many different roles Jennifer Jason Lee has inhabited in which she might have garnered a nomination already. Daisy Domergue is just another in a list of Oscar-worthy performances. However well it was or wasn't written, under Leia's skillful hands, Domergue becomes a character who is shackled, beaten, and bound for the gallows, and yet is clearly in control of her fate throughout. I mean, pretty much everybody in the poll had defenders except for Cranston. This is from Andrew Cochran from Riverside, California. This was a tough call. Jennifer Jason Leigh was a powerhouse in The Hateful Eight. Although the writing had much to do with this, I thought Lay's presence and charisma was unique insofar as her physicality and dedication to the role demands the audience's awe, pity, and hate within almost every scene. That said, Charlotte Rampling's performance in 45 years definitely got the smoke in my eyes. Her performance in the last two minutes will stay with me for the foreseeable future. And here's one from Danny in Ashland, Oregon. Am I missing something here? To be fair, I haven't seen Rampling's performance in 45 years, but since seeing Rylance's performance in Bridge of Spies on the film's opening weekend, that has been a performance I've never been able to shake. Maybe it's because I'm an actor as well, but it's a potent cocktail of stillness, economy, and most importantly, it's not just a single performance. It's a true collaboration with the other actors. So those are the results, Tasha, of the most recent film spotting poll. Now, for our latest poll question, we're going to take our cue, Tasha and I are going to take our cue from Zoolander 2, which recently came out 15 years after the original Zoolander. And we're also taking a cue from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2, colon... Sword of Destiny, which is coming out 16 years after Ang Lee's original groundbreaking martial arts hit. So the question is, what is the best long-delayed sequel? We're talking about follow-up movies that came out 
years, sometimes decades after the original film and continued the same story. Will you lay out for us the options on this next poll question? Well, currently we've got The Color of Money, which was made at 25 years after 1961's The Hustler. Mad Max Fury Road, made 29 years after 1985's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Star Wars The Force Awakens, 10 years after 2005's Revenge of the Sith. Toy Story 3, made 11 years after 1999's Toy Story 2. And the perennial favorite, Other. Other. I'm waiting for Other 2. Other 2 is not due out for another 18 years. (laughs) And it's going to be... Terrible. It's going to be a pip. Just absolutely. No, I terrible. think it's going to be a pip. I mean, it's not going to be as bad as the others two, which that's just them sitting around in a room. I think it's going to be like Police Academy Mission to Moscow. That's how good it's going to be. You can join us over at filmspotting.net to cast your vote in the current poll and send your letters to feedback at filmspotting.net to support your choice. Listen, I've been thinking. Really? About why we're so good together. Why is that? Well... Your crazy matches my crazy, big time. Mm. And uh, we're like two jigsaw pieces, you know, the weird curvy edges. But you fit them together and you see the picture on top. Right. Wait. There's something I've been meaning to ask you. Only because you haven't gotten around to asking me. Will you, um, stick it Marry me? Uh, Jinx? That's Ryan Reynolds in the film Deadpool, which made $150 million over the weekend. Amazing amounts of money. And earlier in the show, we talked about a critic's darling of a movie, The Witch, that's going to need a lot of personal, dedicated support, I think, to even make a dent in the marketplace. So, of course, we figured that the perfect counterpoint for that would be a critic-proof hit like Deadpool that's going to make money like crazy, featuring a superhero we can't even quote on this show without a series of bleeps and a lot of blushing, especially on my behalf. Tasha is used to it. I'm not. Deadpool is currently in theaters after the opening weekend it just enjoyed, as we've said. Tasha, what is this movie's success really built on, and where is it coming from, and what what is the appeal, do you think? I mean, were there just so many 14-year-old boys that didn't get enough of the superheroes the last 10 years of their lives, or Well, what? I mean, if you don't understand the appeal of this movie, you're clearly a bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to actually pull out one of the more colorful phrases from Deadpool and, like, actually force Joe DeSoe, who's sitting in the room with us, to bleep me out. But I don't want Adam and Josh to crawl out from under their bed and take me down. This movie is, it was billed as just this, this brash, brazen, profane groundbreaker of a movie. It was basically build is, hey, do you want to see somebody break all the rules and get away with it? And that's the fundamental appeal of Deadpool. I mean, he's he's been around for more than a decade in Marvel Comics as this sort of figure of fun. He's got a healing factor that makes him basically indestructible. He is incredibly profane. He breaks the fourth wall. He's a comedy figure. Because he can't be killed, there are really no rules for him. Hmm. There are no consequences for anything he does. He is a perfect fantasy for 14-year-old boys, but also also for people who have some of that, you know, 14-year-old voice still remaining in them. There is this fantasy of being able to do whatever you want without anybody being able to stop you, being able to get away with anything, being able to take any damage and come back from it. Right. This is a character who, like, part of the appeal is just he's making poop jokes. I mean, that's on, on a 
fundamental gut childish level. Yeah, poop if you're that's lucky. That's what it is. Poop if you're lucky. That's, <laughs> that's just, <laughs> there's an there's an awful lot of the humor in this movie that takes place between the upper thighs and the navel. Right. It's, it's just <laughs> it's good. all it's yes, all right. pelvis all the time. It's, it's definitely Central America in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's between. <laughs> but, this, yeah. I mean, are you are you telling me that you didn't laugh? Uh, you know, it's not bad, and I do think the appeal of Deadpool is. For people who have kind of dutifully showed up to every one of the damn uh, Marvel superhero movies thus far, and I guess secretly wondered, well, wh- what if what would it be like if they just really went for the hard R rating with with the kind of action and violence and mayhem they were going to give us? What if they actually amped up a sexual component? Even if it's sort of a leering adolescent male sexual component, what if they? What if? What if? What if? What if? And as you say, the big what if is, what if we had an indestructible wise ass of a, of a superhero voiced by Ryan Reynolds, who sounds exactly like Jim Carrey in The Mask, by the way, uh, his fellow Canadian, right? Am I it's, right? It is unbelievable the degree to which yeah, he's, and, he's, and he's channeling. You Jim know, Carrey. I think Ryan, Ryan Reynolds is a fairly good actor, a fairly good screen company in all kinds of roles. That's about it, and. I don't think he's any better or worse than he usually is in this, but somehow uh, this role uh, with that guy is absolutely hitting people's sweet spot. And, um, you know, I've never felt necessarily part of the target audience for almost any of the the Marvel or DC superhero movies because, uh, you know, and and you you admit these sort of personal resume items uh, as a critic going in. It's not the stuff I grew up with. And that has not prevented me from really enjoying the very best of the movie so far. This one, yes, it's different, and I sort of I, I did get a few laughs out of it. And I think T.J. Miller's extremely effective as sort of the, the, the completely deadpan wiseacre buddy. But there's something a little souring for me and a little galling about the way they kind of use that indestructibility with the character to just simply give you the most violent superhero movie ever and the violence is sort of relentless in the picture and it's very close to what would be in a different context at least a few years ago x or nc17 level violence it is but no no more and because it's in the sort of jocular you know sort of like sadistic joke territory you know it's like okay it's just it's all just for fun you know it's a pretty good time or a fairly good time but it's it, to me. It's like a lot of these films. It's empty calories, but it's just got that kind of ashen taste in your mouth. At least that's what I left with. But I don't know. I think you liked it a little better than I did. Right? I definitely liked it better than you. There is. I mean, it. This is exactly the kind of movie where you write a review that you put more than five minutes of thought into, and somebody's going to come back to you and say you thought about this too much. You know, it's just a fun time at the movies. Stop thinking. I don't think that's a particularly. That's not a particularly strong defense. No, it's never a good defense. Well, it's. A Especially a bad defense for us because this is literally our job. We are literally yeah. paid to think about the movies. But in well, this I'm, case— Well, I'm, I'm metaphorically paid to think about the movies, <laughs> not, not literally. Really, for me, they, they actually like come to my house with a stack of bills and place them on a tray in front of me <laughs> to make it very clear that I am being paid. This is what your money is. Whereas in your case, they just sort of like wave some words at you. Metaphorical. It's, uh, with, with, with some excuses about you know, Tribune bankruptcy and the rest of it. But anyway, yeah, so it's, it's, like it's another story. it's like the ending of The Witch and you're getting paid is uh, supported by the satanic church. That's right. That's right. So anyway, there's just there's a no harm, no foul sense to to Deadpool. And part of the reason it worked for me, I think, is because this 
characters could so easily be toxic. He takes nothing seriously. He loves these like complicated uh, profanities and put downs. Everyone in his world is sort of on a similar level of like basically how disgusting can we make the insults that we throw at each other? How disgusting can we make the display of the feelings that we're feeling about each other in the world? But you come to a place where since everybody in that world is like that, you know, there's a an imperviousness to them that I think makes the whole movie into just kind of a playground, almost a safe space for big emotional violence and big physical violence and big ridiculousness. And it almost it deflates the the pain of violence. Which Oh yeah. Oh yeah it does. I mean I mean there's I mean none of these superhero movies have ever dealt with the actual consequences. I mean, of course they don't. They're getting close there and they're trying to. With Avengers two there was there was a big movement towards let's concentrate on what this gigantic world global devastation is doing to individual people. Let's focus on saving individual people. Mm-hmm. There was an attempt to kind of dial it back a little bit. This is going Deadpool, way far the in the way, other direction. The other way, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really hard world for mooks. It's a really hard world for random thugs who just get mowed down in numbers. And at one point, he actually spells out a word with their corpses for comic effect. Right, right. Ordinary people in this story do not matter at all. But all of the characters that you actually spend time with, he is. this is not a movie about, you know, uh, I'm thinking 1984 and the image of a boot stomping on a face forever. Right. It's not like that. It's more here's a whole world full of smart-ass people who are impervious to harm, wailing on each other with very little impact. And there's – I mean we're talking not necessarily about what about it appeals to us as what about it makes it so much fun. And what about it makes it fun is it's a safe space to be a smart-ass. It's a safe space to say whatever you want and do whatever you want. It just – it becomes this big romper room of a world – it's a video game, you know. Yeah. It's a video game with destructible backgrounds where everything can be destroyed. Right, and right, it's right. Just, it's just for giggles. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's fairly successful on those terms, Tasha. I think what I don't get is that this this director, it's not like he has the skill of somebody like Edgar Wright, who can do an, an amazing amount of mayhem and action and give it, you know, some real momentum and speed and and some impact and keep the scene moving. And here, I, you know, it's it's like pretty good action. Just like some of the jokes, and a lot of them are just in-jokes about Ryan Reynolds being, you know, on the People magazine cover, Sexiest Man Alive, which we actually see at one point, you know, references to Blade Two, the sequel to the film that, you know, he did with Jessica Biel. It makes a joke about his Green Lantern costume yeah, Green and how Lantern. he doesn't want to wear it again. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's – it's more just about, like, ticking off the references. On that level, it's not a bad time, but I, I, I am astounded – and completely out of touch <laughs> in that I was surprised at how just how damn much money it made over the weekend. That people truly were eager to see this sort of – this kind of snide uh, – and I'm the snidest guy I know. But, uh, you know, this kind of snide sense of humor applied to the comic book, the superhero comic book genre. And uh, it's not like they took a straight-faced character and, and subverted it. This character, as you say, was like this – always, but always kind of tipping around the edges of other movies. And here he is on his own. I don't know. Do I want to see three more? Do you? 
I don't know that I want to see three more because so much of this film was about novelty. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, which Deadpool is not a part of, he's part of the the separate Fox deal that also has the X-Men. But the Marvel Cinematic Universe has kind of become the model for superhero movies. And they've taken on this increasingly grave and, and airless seriousness. You have moments of fun in Guardians of the Galaxy and people seized onto that so solidly. Exactly. You have yeah. all of the banter between the Avengers and people love that. That's what fixates them on the characters. But in the end, all of these movies are about gigantic threats to entire planets and how they can only be overcome by the grimmest of faces and the most serious of actions. And teamwork, which of course, you know, this guy never learns. Teamwork and, and emotional commitment. Yeah. 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 Whereas this is about like one flippant dude trying to kill another flippant right. dude. But you're absolutely right about I think the, the success of Guardians of the Galaxy a couple summers ago, uh, even though it was just PG thirteen, it was it was people were people were eager. I think for a less heavy handed, bombastic, somewhat serious tone to their superhero action pictures, and and they responded. And I, I guess that's the case with Deadpool too. They must they also they sold the living hell out. I know the you know. the marketing for this film has been ubiquitous yeah. and incredibly and it works. pushy. It worked, it worked. Here's the thing, though. If people don't want what you're selling, I mean, the the marketing for Zoolander, has, Zoolander 2, has been equally gigantic and, and pushy and in all sorts of different platforms and, and trying for, like, viral impact. Right. And it's been going on for more than a year, and that didn't help that film's bottom line. There so you go. ultimately, if you're not selling something that they want, you're, you're still not going to be able to sell it. Right people apparently really wanted uh, to see a guy in, in tight clothes swear a lot and uh, grope Colossus's groin. There you go. <laughs> Which, I mean, who doesn't want that? Why don't I, you want that? I, I, I want it to a degree. I, I, Deadpool opened last weekend, and I'm mixed on it, Tasha, stronger on it, I would say. Let us know what you think by emailing feedback at filmspotting.net. And after the break, we'll be back with some thoughts on the Oscar nominees we wouldn't have chosen this year and how we'd replace them given the opportunity. Stay with us. See the shadows hold. When the dim lamp light hits your chair These are thoughts I never say I make them hide and go away Overlooking what I see In the past got the best curtains and pale blue walls If I can't win I'm gonna lose it all I talk to my Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello there, everyone at Film Spotting Prime. This is Allison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast, where we consider the beauty and the implications of a life based entirely on bloody vengeance as we discuss the 1973 Japanese revenge classic Lady Snowblood. And we'll also be talking about some new releases and offering a few streaming alternatives to the ones we suggest you skip. To listen, search for us on iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. 
Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. This is Josh Brolin from The Goonies 2. You're listening to Film Spotting? That's a question. The proper thing to do would be to finish him off quick. He's to be cared for as long as necessary. I understand. What happened? We did what we had to do. He was buried right. This is Film Spotting. I'm Tasha Robinson. And I'm Michael Phillips. That was a clip from Tom Hardy and Domhn Hall Gleeson in The Revenant, one of the films up for multiple Academy Awards at this year's ceremony. It's been doing well at practically every other awards ceremony, and uh, there are some people thinking it's going to sweep this year. Tom Hardy gave one of my favorite performances of this year in The Revenant, so you're not going to hear anything about him from me in this upcoming Top 5 segment. I make no promises about Michael's list. Michael, you want to set us up? Yes, there's a lot of second-guessing around the Oscars every year, Tasha, including historical second-guessing where people loop back into time to shake their fists over decades-old choices. How the hell could they give it to Rocky, for example, instead of Taxi Driver, right? We thought about doing a top five worst Oscar choices or a top five most overlooked non-Oscar films, but we decided to stick with this year and look at some of the choices we feel strongly about and some of the non-choices we feel strongly about. So this is our top five baffling Oscar nominees from 2015. We're going to be talking over nominees. We would like to boot out of contention and see what we might have put in their place. Tasha, what is your number five pick? At number five, I've got Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, which is up in the best costume design department. I... Hmm. What can I even say about this? This this movie is an explosion of taffeta monstrosities. <laughs> and it is not – it is one of those things – so often you see somebody up for an, an Oscar in the acting category for a role because it was all shouting. This film, the costumes are the equivalent of a sustained Oscar speech shout. This is the award – it's not the award for most costume. Right. It's the award for best costume. And apart from a couple of the, the really sleek little outfits that Kate Blanchett wears, I just I don't see so much craft going into the costumes in this case as <laughs> I don't I don't know they were having a sale at the at the taffeta store and somebody had a truck and a few thousand dollars. I, I love the idea that taffeta is sort of the the visual equivalent of, of equivalent of screaming. You know, like. <laughs> well, it is in this movie. I just I hated the costumes in Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella like I hated so many other things about Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella. So if possible, I would like to boot it out of contention. I'm not even sure what I would replace it with. Uh, some of the top five this time around, and I don't know where you landed, mm. but some of these for me are less about what in the world is that doing in this category and more, could we replace it with this other thing I love? This is a what is this doing in this category? Okay. So I don't know. Maybe Justin Kurzel's Macbeth, maybe The Assassin, maybe Mockingjay Part 2, which you know, has to build an entire world in part through its costuming. And right. There's a lot of costuming going mm-hmm. on. I would accept any of those answers. I would accept write-ins from uh, the film spotting listeners. Just I just want Cinderella swept off the table. Would you accept what I and Joe are currently wearing? I right would now, accept – Which know, is a denim. Best and, costumes you in know, this world. You know, Henley's. Uh, we're both actually dressed like young sort of heartthrob male leads in the Mockingjay series. So well, now that you mention it, I would rather see you in taffeta. 
Just as long as it's not in Cinderella. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I'm with you on that. Funny about Kenneth Branagh. He's had such a successful film career and being just okay at almost anything to do with filmmaking. And now he's just kind of gone into this weird work for higher place. What is your number five? My number five, uh, I I would have to start with music, Tasha. One of the five Oscar-nominated scores this year is Thomas Newman's Music for Bridge of Spies, a film I like a great deal, actually. Spielberg's film uh, starring Tom Hanks. And Mark Rylance and Thomas Newman, who comes from this Hollywood royalty family, his grandfather Alfred Newman, great film composer, Wuthering Heights, all kinds of stuff. Randy Newman, you know, of course, famous uh, for many film scores and many other great, wonderful, wonderful writer in many ways. Thomas Newman, pretty good, you know, uh, you know, known for I suppose American Beauty, among other things, Wall-E, you know, very prolific, hardworking completely adequate composer and here we go again with Bridge of Spies the music is not bad, it doesn't wreck any moment, it also doesn't amplify any moment and you know, okay is not what you want in a composer, you want a composer with some personality and a little pushback sometimes and just, uh, you know, they have to be psychologists, composers do they have to figure out what's going on underneath the scene sometimes or the, or the obvious surface and I would say skip him I would nominate Carter Burwell in a second for a second score he wrote this year. He's already up for Carol. The better music he wrote this year was for Anomalisa, the Charlie Kaufman Duke Johnson film. That is gorgeous, and it's really interestingly orchestrated for kind of a small string chamber or, um, ensemble. And uh, um, I'm just I'm, I'm kind of crazy for Anomalisa. Anyway, a very difficult and in many ways very harsh comedy that was my second favorite film last year and. You know, got minimal Oscar recognition this year, uh, deserved more, and I think the score would be one category, so that's mine. I'm with you all the way on that one. More and more, it feels like there are two kinds of film scores. There are films that where the score tells you how to feel, and there are scores that invite you to feel something. There are scores that that walk along with you and and contribute to how you're feeling. And the Newman score, like so many of the the kind of big booming classical scores just it kind of hits you over the head in a way that to me it it always takes me out of the movie you need it, it just, I agree although when you look back at some of the really great film composers from the past Bernard Herman comes to mind I mean that guy understated he was not and he he, he rarely left the dramatic expression to what was actually happening between the actors and the camera and the director on screen. I mean, he really was a player in in the moment and really, in many ways, was an auteur as great as the director. But Thomas Newman doesn't have that in him. I think he's really his expressions of drama are simply a little obvious and functional and routine. And it's and the movie itself, Bridge of Spies, is a much better film than that. It's a very old, kind of a square, old-fashioned movie that I happen to really like. And unfortunately, the music isn't part of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I There's a reason that I'm uh, I'm agreeing with you so hard on Newman, and we'll see, uh, okay. we'll see why that is a little later on. So what's your number four? For number four, this is a very different flavor of objection than my objection to the costumes in Cinderella. I've got uh, Tom McCarthy for Direction in spotlight. Oh, no way. Way. 
And here's why. It's not that I object to Spotlight or his direction in any way. Tom McCarthy is a very understated, very methodical, very calm director. And I appreciate that about him. I really, to be fair, I have no objection to him. I would just put him, I guess, at the bottom of my list of the nominated directors this year in terms of, of personality, in terms of style, in terms of risks taken, in terms of idiosyncrasies. What I want to see in Best Director is something that separates it from Best Film of the Year. I want to see something that is visibly directed. I want to see somebody that has taken risks and done something new and interesting with Mm. director. And in this case, Tom McCarthy for me is he's almost pleasingly anonymous in some ways because he is not obtrusive. He is not pushy. He does not assert himself unpleasantly, Mm. all of which is normally a good thing in a film but to me it just it means he doesn't rise to the the top of the heap in terms of somebody with something to say so who would you replace him with that is a good question um pete doctor for inside out i mean that movie not only moves along so perfectly but so much of it is is personality driven in a way that had to be created by a director who knew what he was doing with the design, with the characters, with the the look and feel of the film. And I think it's just a perfectly directed film. I would also put some very flashy uh, titles from this year in that category. Sebastian Shipper for Victoria, Laszlo Nemes for Son of Saul, mm. both people who made really distinctive choices in really assertive ways that really impressed me specifically as directors. Right. Yeah. And we can do this whole episode sort of uh, one way or, or another, Tasha. We can kind of talk about plausible, uh, possible alternatives that actually might have had a shot or films, as you say, like Son of Saul, which really never had a shot, I think, for Best Director, although I would agree it deserves it. Or in my case, you know, a film like Anomalisa, which you know, was never going to get a Best Picture nomination. Do I think it deserves it? Do I think Hu Shen's The Assassin deserves it? Yes, yes. <laughs> but you know, it's just simply these films don't make enough of an economic dent in Hollywood psyche to, to ever get any kind of Oscar recognition. It's just that's how it is. I think it's always about the money to some degree. But um, no, yeah, I, absolutely. I agree with that. But although I disagree with you on McCarthy because I think – I wouldn't want Spotlight directed any other way, and I'm not saying you're saying that, but I'm I'm saying that if if I the wrong kind of kinetic filmmaking or even any kind of visual approach or rhythmic approach to that story that would that would kind of amp it up or call attention to itself, I think suddenly then you're not thinking about the issues anymore. And I'm not saying that Tom McCarthy's films have been uniformly involving for me. And he certainly made a couple that I really don't care about at all. But this is this is one. It's my favorite film from last year, and it is. It's it's a weirdly unassuming piece of work. But I, I wouldn't again again. I don't see any other uh, alternative being better. You know, I am certainly not saying that somebody else should have directed Spotlight or that it should have been directed in a different way. It would not be improved in any way by being directed the way Adam McKay directed The Big Short. Right. So. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put that off the table. I like Tom McCarthy's movies a lot. I like this movie a lot. I'm just saying I think that we should err on the side of dreaming big for this yeah. list. I think we should err on the side of what, you know, following our passions of what we most want to see. What is your passion for number four? What are you hoping? This is how much I like Spotlight, Tasha. Okay. All right. So just back off of the passion talk and I'm <laughs> back to kind of drab, unassuming realism here. But I would say, for I would say, consider the best supporting actor category. Christian Bale for the big short, not a film I like particularly, you know, not not much. 
would I would I unnominate Christian Bale and put in any number of people from the spotlight ensemble? Yes, I would. I would, including maybe topping the list with somebody like Liv Schreiber, who plays the editor Marty Byrne. Fantastic performance. Very very little screen time in Spotlight, but it is. You know, people talk about exercises and minimalism being kind of effective and impressive in their own right, say Mark Rylance and Bridge of Spies, or I would say Liv Schreiber and Spotlight. But often that just means a moderately talented actor can get by because he or she is not trying to do anything they can't do. But I think Liv Schreiber, Mark Rylance, these are protean actors who can do almost anything. And again, they're all playing in the same drama the right way in Spotlight. And I think you could also nominate Michael Keaton, you know, who is a, it's, it's a key supporting role, certainly as important a performance and a part as Mark Ruffalo plays in Spotlight. And he was the one who got the nomination because, why? He's got the Oscar moment. Yep. He's the only character that has an Oscar moment in Spotlight where, you know, there could have been any of us, you know, and, and it's... It's not badly acted, certainly, but it's one of the only moments in that entire film, which I love, which seems a little like, eh, it's more Hollywood than, than real. Why, why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. Now let's take it up to Ben, let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie. It's time. They knew, and they let it happen to kids. Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show people that nobody could get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. It's clippable. Yeah, clippable. Exactly. So that's that's my that's my number four. Now, what about you? Well, moving on to number three. Uh, no, we're back to we're back to anger here for this one. Okay. I've got Jennifer Lawrence and Joy for the best actress category. Not a film you love. Wow, you have a you are a master of understatement, my friend. Uh, I hated uh, David O. Russell's joy. I just I thought it was is incompetent too strong a word. I, I mean, I don't think that there is anything in that movie that looks like recognizable human behavior. Mm. And I will give Lawrence this. She is the least worst part of it. You know, I admire Jennifer Lawrence a lot, both as an actress and as an individual. And I recognize the Academy's like love of her as a figure. She's always good theater at the Oscars. But if you're going to put her up for something, maybe putting her up for, for Mockingjay Part 2, where if there's a bigness and an overstatedness about her character at least has something to do thematically with the film. Mm -hmm. I thought I just thought the joy was a hot mess and that it doesn't belong anywhere near the Academy Awards. I'm in a meeting with our lawyers. What do you think you're doing? Go home, Joy, and watch the numbers roll in on television. Make 50,000 mops, borrowing and owing every dollar, including your home. It could have been handled better. I'll let Todd have another shot. I don't want Todd or anyone else to try it. It should be me. We don't have regular people. We have celebrities or spokesmodels do the selling. I told you this. Who showed you the mop? Who sold it to you? Who taught you how to use it? And who convinced you that it was great after you thought it was worthless? Her performance in that as She's, what, 28, and she's trying to play a, a dowdy, middle-aged, single-mother housewife who's worn down by life. It just doesn't come across. She's absolutely the wrong person for that role. Hmm. And I don't have a strong contender to replace her. I would have given it to Charlize Theron for Mad Max, Fury Road, or Alicia Vikander for Ex Machina. 
Meryl Streep for Ricky and the Flash or Lia Costa for Victoria. I just think there are so many better choices than a, a badly miscast person doing a kind of character that we've seen before in a film that she doesn't fit into. I'm with you. I'm with you on that all the way. I think that's, I, mean, I, I think the world – David O. Russell had a remarkable streak there with the fighter – Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. That's really good, really good mainstream filmmaking that actually tries a few things. It's got a sense of humor and actually found an audience. And Joy, it's amazing it even got by with anybody. It's a film that's finding itself or unable to find itself scene to scene to scene. And yeah, I agree. Lawrence is doing the best she can under sort of adverse circumstances. Let's stick with the actors for just a minute here, Tasha. My number three best actor, okay, um, Michael Fassbender in a film I don't really think much of, Steve Jobs. Fassbender is one of the most engaging and consistently grounded and charismatic actors we have now. And I, I think his work in Steve Jobs is very solid. And I think that film is almost completely frustrating despite how good everybody is in it. <laughs> and I would replace Fassbender with, say, Michael B. Jordan from Creed, which is one of my favorite films from last year. That's, if look, if every popcorn movie that came along were as, as satisfying as Creed, I'd be a happy critic. I'm a fairly happy critic. <laughs> you uh, seem so jolly. I'm jolly. I'm a fairly happy guy in my life. But, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, Jordan got the nomination, I think. I think Creed just kind of got passed over in a couple of key categories. We'll hear about another one in a second. But that's what comes to mind for best actor. I think Fassbender, no. Uh, frankly, the one, the guy, the the money you can make at the Oscars, of course, is betting that Leonardo DiCaprio will win for The Revenant. I think I, <laughs> I think it's a it's a perfectly good performance in a highly problematic film that is so inevitably going to win a lot of awards on the 28th. I I'm almost disheartened by it. But uh, I, I you know I would have loved to seen Michael B. Jordan, who in Creed is giving an old-fashioned star performance. He's a real actor. He's also I think officially now become a movie star who can really hold the screen. And I think anyone who dismisses Creed is making a big mistake. That that film held up great a second time. Where'd you get this? Mexico. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. I ought to knock you up myself. You know how many times I had to carry your father up these stairs because he couldn't walk? Is that what you want? No, you want brain damage. Yeah, you do. You want to be so brain damaged you can't form a sentence. I didn't get hurt doing anything. Apollo didn't get hurt. He got killed. People get killed. I didn't take you in for you to go backwards. You're better than this. I'm leaving soon. I'm going to be fighting full time now. So I wanted to tell you face to face. I was really surprised by Creed. I, I only went and saw it because my favorite podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour, sorry, film spotting, uh, oh. recommended it so hard that I said, all right, I'm, I'm coming in the door. And I sat there with my mouth open. Yeah, Michael right. B. Jordan is so key to that film and he's so good. And I don't want to like say that Sylvester Stallone shouldn't have been nominated because I did like that performance a lot. Me too. And it's a very it's a very visible like he is actually working he's actually acting yes yes you know he's not coasting but the fact that he was nominated and Jordan wasn't is just it's I mean it's criminal it's right. it's kind of grotesque I agree and I would push that further except it sounds like you're going to uh, take up the slack for <laughs> me and I don't so. need to bother what's your number two my number two is a little film called Bridge of Spies oh. and a little score by Thomas Newman and uh, you have covered quite uh, adequately you, oh good we're gonna just cream this <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm sorry Thomas Newman, but uh, yeah, as you say, it's 
it's comparatively a, a generic score compared to some of the other scores out there. In the the dream big, vote your passion, no chance of winning, my favorite score of the year was Disaster Pieces score for It Follows. That is just, it's such a, a driving, compelling a piece of music. Mm. And I, I've listened to it, oh, by the way, it's great work music. Huh. When you're trying to edit on a series of tight deadlines and it's really important that you work urgently, <laughs> <laughs> this soundtrack will chase along behind you. That's like, a fantastic segment idea. The idea of like, what's, what's good work music? You know, like I, I find that if I'm really really want to play into my paranoia and the fact that I'm about to blow another deadline, I always put on Under the Skin by Micah, oh. Mika Levi. It's fantastic. <laughs> so it's a, it's just music that's just designed to kind of unsettle you. And, and, and it's great if you're really on a tight deadline. Oh, yeah. That soundtrack and Bernard Herrmann, as you were saying. I mean, uh, you can't beat something like the Psycho soundtrack if you're trying to really like push that urgency. Right, right. But the disaster piece score is so fundamentally important to that movie. And yeah. It may sound hypocritical, me bringing it in after just ragging on movies like Bridge of Spies for the score telling you what to feel. Mm. But it's such a different feeling in a horror movie when a score is telling you how to feel and when a score is pressing down on you viscerally mm-hmm. at every moment, letting you know that like the threat is real and that this thing is on your heels. I love that piece of music. And it's just it's such a composition success. You know, it's so it's so different and yet it's so immediate and so visceral. Hmm. I love that piece of music. I don't necessarily have anything against Newman, but I, I would boot him out the door into the curb on his butt, <laughs> you know, to make a little more space in this world for it follows. I would I would I think I'd take a higher road. I'd probably just issue a strongly worded memo. <laughs> Uh, well, if that'll get the yeah, job done. <laughs> What's your number two? My number two, let's stick with uh, with Creed for just a second here. I think one of the biggest crocs of the nominations this year is the director, Ryan Coogler, not getting nominated for Creed. And I would say replace Adam McKay, you know. Um, not not that I'm singling out McKay more than some others, just maybe just by sheer happenstance. But, Tasha, I'm struggling with why I didn't get more out of the big short. I may I may need to see it a second time to really figure out what I find lacking or wanting in that film. But uh, I think McKay simply doesn't, somehow misses that extra layer that makes, makes it all hurt more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the film it bends over backwards to explain itself clearly every second because it's dealing with such complicated financial information. And it might be that I'm just a, such a financial idiot, but uh, I just, I just, I appreciated the effort, but I, that I felt the effort, and I just would say, no, McKay, you know, good, good try, and I think he's he does have a career beyond straight up star-driven comedy, and he's got a huge skill set in in many comic veins, but I, I would say didn't deserve the nomination for the Big Short. I think Ryan Coogler's work in Creed, that guy's made two remarkable features in a row. Fruitvale Station and Alcreed, and I just think if you're going to ignore work that good by someone that promising, then you're you're being stupid. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to uh, disagree with that part because I don't want to seem stupid. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I can't I can't back your play on McKay. I I think that the Big Short, the direction and the editing 
are what makes that film palatable. And, you know, if you want the the grim version of it that hurts, there are any number of alarmist documentaries explaining exactly what went wrong and why in a, in a heavy-handed, clumsy way. This is trying to turn serious issues into cotton candy in order to get it in people's mouths. Yeah. And then not until it's actually in their mouths do they, they realize how sour it is. Do you really, though? Do you, do you I really no, think I think the moments do. come. Do you not feel at the end of that movie like exactly how depressing it is that not, absolutely nothing was done about it? Not else? enough. There's some. There's for me. There's something about the weight of that film that just it floats away just when it should really kind of stick in your craw. But uh, again, I, I think I need another shot at it. So let's let's let, but let's hear what you think. Here. I mean, regardless, I think that space should be made for Ryan Coogler and that movie because I think he's a tremendous director. I think, again, it's criminal that he was overlooked. I think it's just, you, you know, you try not to read other people's minds too much when making accusations, when throwing around heavy words like racism. But again, when you see the one white guy in the film crazy. nominated crazy. above the people who made that film what it is, yep. it's just, it's a little frustrating. It's galling. It's galling. And right. it's a fantastic film and it's so well put together. I'm so, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll back half your play. Okay, great. Well, I, Tasha, I want to hear your number one. What's your number one most baffling Oscar nomination story this year? I'm going to go with Brian Cranston and Trumbo. Just didn't see it. For me, no, for me, that performance, I mean, it's fun, but is fun the same as good? If it was, you would be all over Deadpool. For me, <laughs> that film. It certainly moves along and it certainly conveys the information that it wants to convey. But for me, Brian Cranston, as much as I love him as an actor in so many things and as much as I'm enjoying his career surge and like how much fun he's having in all of these films, in this case, it just felt like caricature. For me, it's just it's a big historical dumb show. He might as well be playing Groucho Marx. You know, he's waggling a cigar and talking out of the corner of his mouth and, and talking really, really fast. So just too big for you, too stylized, too broad. All of these things. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't you write this pick for me? You're doing a better job of it than I am. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a it's a puzzling thing because he's a very very skillful actor, and I, I I suspect that if you took that very same performance and put it in a better movie, in a in a, in a better directed, slightly uh, substantially better written film, you, you your objections would fall away. But I'm you know we're just we're just guessing here. But that's I, I bet that's the case. But what would you put instead? I would. Uh, you, you want to talk about dreaming big? One of my favorite completely unrecognized films last year uh, was a little movie called Gabriel, starring Rory Culkin as a young man who is, he's having uh, mental illness issues, and it's about the choices that he makes and the impact they have on his family. I love this performance so much. It's mm. just, it's this relatively small incredibly nuanced thing where you can see everything that's passing through his mind, passing over his face, which becomes very important in a film about somebody who can't communicate what's going on in his mind. Mm -hmm. I love this performance so much. And I just I want more people to see it. This is exactly the kind of film, the kind of like little film that I wish the Academy Awards would occasionally find and bring to a larger audience. Right. I haven't seen it. I know I have to see it. Well, they, I mean, they do it in other categories. The best animated features category this year, bringing things like The Boy in the World to a, like a bigger audience. If more of the categories went that route, I think we'd have a much better Academy Awards show. Hmm, hmm, good. Yeah, so I What's agree. your number one? What number you? one, uh, I, would, I would have swapped out in the best picture category. I would have happily swapped out The Big Short and, yes, The Revenant because I don't really – as much as as dazzling as a lot of the revenant is, and and as much as I actually l truly admire the first forty five minutes or an hour, 
I think that film gets increasingly preposterous and, you know, it's the perils of Pauline with the slightly different <laughs> historical backdrop. But it's – it's. I, oh, I, I, only I, there is a scene where Leonardo DiCaprio got tied to t- a – Actually tied to a railroad track, track and then gets out. a man out. Twirl, twirling his mustache. He gets out in time. Gets out in time. I would have ditched those. And again, I, I'm just sort of stumping for my second favorite film last year, Anomalisa. I think that's, that's the kind of serious animation – that I had never seen before. It's the I think Charlie Kaufman's probably the most inventive screenwriter we have right now. I think it's the saddest comedy I've ever seen, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, in a way that I, I couldn't predict where it was going or even the tone it was going to take, and scene to scene. And that's we're we're as you say we're dreaming big. We, it was never going to happen. It's a film that could barely make any kind of dent at the box office, just because it is what it is. But thank God it's there. I, I just think now and then you see a little bit of art to go with all the commerce. And uh, you need both in the industry. And I think I got a little bit from uh, Anomalisa. And I would have loved to seen it get nominated for Best Picture, not just Best Animated Feature. And I'd say the same for Inside Out, too. You know, why not, why not a Best Picture nomination? I mean, why not more nominations? You've got these they, – they keep expanding the categories and then it feels more and more arbitrary when they leave out some really good films that right. really deserve the recognition. Okay. Those are our top five baffling Oscar nominees from 2015. We'll see if any of them win as writing candidates when the Oscar ceremony airs on Sunday, February 28th. In the meantime, you can send your picks for baffling nominees from this year or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave the show a voicemail at 312-264-0744, and you may hear it featured on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook and on Twitter, simply at Film Spotting. You can find my writing at The Verge and hear me and other Film Spotting and Dissolve veterans Keith, Scott, Rachel, and Genevieve comparing new releases with old favorites at the Next Picture Show podcast, part of the Film Spotting podcast family. And finally, I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can read Michael's thoughts on film online and in print via the Chicago Tribune, and he's on Twitter as Phillips Tribune. Two L's. I've actually added two more L's, so it's four L's. Four L's. Are they in the same place as the first two L's, or is it Phillips Tribune? <laughs> I'll try that. I'll try that. I'll see if I get more followers that way. We'll try it. <laughs> Coming out this week in limited release and opening in Chicago, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. This is from Chicago filmmaker Stephen Cohn, who's one of the most interesting local filmmakers. I think Tasha made a very good film called The Wise Kids. And Henry Gamble's Birthday Party is, in many ways, is uh, his most impressive sort of visual achievement. It's a very simple story of a birthday party at the home of a megachurch pastor and his wife and son, who's turning 18, and it uh, deals with all kinds of issues, you know, gay coming of age, uh, just all sorts of family dynamics. And it's one of the few films I've seen lately, Tasha, where I really wouldn't have minded another 20 minutes because it sets in motion so many characters and so many plot lines. And uh, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting mixture of sprawl, but also very tight in terms of length, 90 minutes. But it's worth seeing. Yeah, it's a beautifully shot film. It's just the 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 images are just glowing, and the performances are really interesting. The characters are really interestingly built. Uh, it, I mean, it has that feeling of like a small film, possibly shot in someone's backyard, mm-hmm. maybe literally in Chicago in yeah. this case. But as you say, there's so much going on with it. There's such a richness and depth to it. And again, there's a lot of performance where. A lot of this subtext is just it comes in shadows that pass over people's faces at, at specific times when specific conversational topics come up. It's really strongly recommended. Yeah, very good. And that, that'll be at the Gene Siskel Film Center 
Also in wide release, Eddie the Eagle, the story of England's first ski jumper to enter the Winter Olympics. That's with Hugh Jackman and Christopher Walken. Gods of Egypt, the film Triple Nine, which is directed by John Hillcoat, who did The Road and The Proposition. That's with Casey Affleck, Kate Winslet, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and Woody Harrelson. Next week, Adam and Josh are back with the second film in their Elaine May marathon, 1972's The Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepard and the top five films of 1972. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. And for more information on this week's music, visit filmspotting.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Tasha Robinson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.